0: Stories. Today we're going to talk about stories. I love stories. How many of you love stories? I think stories like music are just one of those things that pretty much everybody loves, everybody appreciates. We're just wired up in such a way that we're drawn to stories. It's no mistake that Jesus did so much of his teachings in the form of a story. In fact, it's, it's kind of interesting to me a lot of his teachings was was actually different than some of the the approach that i do to preaching a lot of preachers will go verse by verse through the bible which is what we typically do but jesus often took topical approaches he would tell stories and the thing about story is a real good one will kind of hook you there'll be like a surprise you know this with movies as well as with books those, those stories that are so riveting that you're not really sure what's going to happen. Or maybe you think you know what's going to happen and then, surprise! I can always tell a good story from a bad story because I'm not particularly good at figuring out plots. But when I do, then I know it's, they didn't really tell the story very well because they gave it away. My wife loves mysteries and, and suspense. And, and there's just that that sense of awe and wonder, like, what's going to happen next? The Bible's packed with stories. And after all, it's not a book. It's actually a library of 66 books. 66 books that you can carry in your hand. Of course, if you have a smartphone, you can carry a whole lot more than that these days with Kindles. Some parts of the Bible, they're filled with poetry, others with instructions, and still others with history. Today, we're returning to the book of Mark. And we're, we're, just, we're going to be looking together at this incredible story or story of stories, collections of stories that Mark has put together. The book of Mark is, is one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus as well as telling the stories that Jesus told. Mark chapter 11, verse 18, just to kind of give you a setting where we were at prior to this. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard and began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The Jews were God's chosen people, but they were frequently led astray by corrupt kings, by self-righteous religious leaders who were more concerned about their own glory than God's. Jesus repeatedly confronted them, leading to hostility. And spoiler alert, they ultimately succeeded in their quest to kill Jesus. But he is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. And thank you, Jesus. That we don't merely worship, we don't worship a book, the words in a book, but the word logos, the original Greek, we're told that, Jesus, you are the word. You are a living word. And as we, as we look at your written word to discover more who you are, I pray that our hearts would open. We'd be drawn to love you more, to follow you more, to trust you more. Tis so sweet to trust in you, Jesus. And we thank you for your amazing grace that invites us into a relationship with a holy God despite our flaws, our sins, our failures. Use my words as we look at your words, Lord, to bring about transformation in all of our lives. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures really, really well. And it's really important for us to understand the context of this story because the words won't make any sense unless you get the big picture of what's going on. These religious leaders, they were the the Jewish leaders. They knew scriptures. They They knew the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. But these Jewish people, as God's chosen people, They were the leaders of God's chosen people. They knew the scriptures. They studied them. In some cases, they memorized entire chapters of the Old Testament. In some cases, they they memorized entire books of the Old Testament. In fact, they were Jewish leaders that had memorized the whole Old Testament. They knew the scriptures. They knew them very, very well. And they wanted everyone else to know how well they knew them. See, something happened in their hearts. They became prideful. They became arrogant and self-righteous because they were the good ones. They were the righteous ones. Except through the whole process of studying God's word, they missed the whole point that it's a love letter for us to understand our Creator. The Bible itself was not written as a scientific textbook to analyze and and dissect, though Bible study is extremely important. But Jesus repeatedly talked about the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus himself knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He spoke of the law and the prophets in reference to the Hebrew Bible. So really, there's just two parts to the Old Testament. There's what's called the law and the prophets. The law, Torah, Pentateuch, Matthew, no, not Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're known as the five books of Moses. And then there's all these prophets and and a number of different prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Micah. There are also some psalms. Some put them in a third category of other writings. But before we look at Jesus's words in Mark, I want to examine a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And I want to just read this to you. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen, but I really want you to just listen to the words. This is, this is a love song. It's a poem. I'm not going to sing you the love song because I don't know the melody. But this is a poem from the prophet Isaiah. He says, Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it in the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. And then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? But instead, he heard cries of violence. Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. And then he explains what this metaphor is all about, what this love story, this song, this passage, this poem is all about. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Now, in case you missed it, and again, it's poetry. Sometimes, some, some of you, I know, you love poetry and you're able to study and see the, the language and the way that words and phrases and, and grammar are put together. Others of you are like, what's the point? I didn't even understand that word he said. And it didn't even rhyme. How can you call it poetry? It wasn't written originally in English, just in case you, you didn't know that. But in case you missed it in here, the vineyard owner is God and the vineyard is Israel. The vineyard owner is God. God owns this vineyard. And the vineyard, he's looking at his chosen people. He's looking at the people of Israel. Now, the the vineyard failed to produce good crops, good fruit, in the same way that the people of Israel abandoned justice and righteousness for oppression and violence. It sounds a little bit like our world today, doesn't it? I've had a nickel for every time I've heard someone talk about, oh, the world today, the people, oh, this culture, oh, We're just going in the wrong direction. Things are just so bad. And, of course, we're we're confronted with bad news almost 24-7, whether it's through the Internet or through television, through the newspaper, through even conversations. It's likely that this passage had been memorized by some of Jesus' audience. Uh, again, he's now now we're at, at Mark chapter twelve, and he's speaking to these religious leaders. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. So, so now we jump ahead hundreds of years to Jesus. Jesus knew this passage from Isaiah. Many in his audience knew this passage from Isaiah. So he, he tells the story. He says, "A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower." Immediately, these religious scholars, they knew the story. They knew what he was talking about. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So at this point, they're like, we know this story. We can probably reenact it. We can, we can tell it. This was a very common arrangement, by the way. The story that Jesus is telling, very common back in the day. How many of you own a vineyard? Any of you vineyard, vineyard owners today? Yeah, I didn't think so. Even farming is not the, the occupation that it once was. In fact, about 100, 100, I believe it was 100 years ago, the number one most common occupation in America was farmer. There were more people farming than any other occupation 100 years ago. By the way, anyone know what the, the current number one occupation is? The most, the most common occupation in the United States right now. Take a guess, Anybody? Truck driver. See, you learn something new every day. Okay, back to our text. So, the, the scene is, is that the, the vineyards would be planted, and obviously the grapes would be harvested for wine and such. Now, there's a, but the, the arrangement, the way that it worked, is you know only one person could own a particular vineyard unless they were part of some cooperative or something, and so the the vineyard owner would would find workers. And he, he would, as, as this says, people would, would he would rent the, the vineyard out to farmers. And then when they would have a harvest, the owner would get a percentage of the crops and then the harvesters would get a percentage of the crops. That's just, you know, that was the arrangement back in the day. They maybe they didn't necessarily barter so much in, in cash or Venmo or PayPal or, or transactions, but the crops, they would share the crops. There's a lot of talk these days about tenants, about someone renting. Any t- the word tenant is just someone that owns property or, excuse me, rents property. It could be a tenant in a, an apartment, a, a tenant, in this case, a part of a vineyard. Uh, in our current day, there's, there's been a lot of talk about tenants because of COVID. The government has said, well, you can't evict tenants under certain circumstances because of the economic challenges that people have and such. Uh, I would guess many of you have you've been a tenant just out of curiosity here how many of you have you've rented an apartment you've rented a house you've rented you know something so so you you know the drill. All right so the relationship between tenant and landlord can often be a little a little tricky as I mentioned last month expectations are so key in relationships. This is why we have contracts to spell out expectations. I will provide this you'll provide this so the owner of the vineyard he owned the, the, the vineyard and he found these tenants and they were going to rent out the, the property. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is no surprise. This is just what happened. owner would say, hey, it's time to collect some of the fruit. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Now, this was not supposed to happen. Like, what kind of tenant would do this to the owner or in this case, the owner's servant, the, the, the person working for the, to seize him and beat him. No fruit for you. Must have been the message that they were trying to send the owner. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. The original word, the original Greek word for struck on the head is the same word, root word for beheaded. I mean, they just took this guy and destroyed him. Perhaps a subtle reference to John the Baptist, by the way. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. This is not supposed to happen. What's supposed to happen is a servant goes and collects all these grapes or collects wine or maybe some other compensation. Instead, All these servants, these messengers get killed, get destroyed. These tenants are ruthless. They not only refuse to pay the crops that they owe, they violently attack every member of the collection agency. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all. The owner of the vineyard sent his Son, last of all saying, they will respect my son. Does that seem a little naive to you after all? The owner's going to send his son, his only son? His son whom he loved? Now in the culture, a family member of a wealthy household would be respected far more than a servant because he was after all an heir of the family. He would someday own the vineyard, own, own the property, whatever it happened to be. And if the son shows up, well, the tenants might assume that the owner died and that the son is now coming to claim the property that is rightfully his. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. These are evil, evil tenants. How dare they reject the son? They surely thought that they would lay claim to the property because if there are no heirs in the culture, the way it worked is squatters could claim property of a deceased person who had no inheritor. In this case, they not only killed the owner's son, they threw him out of the vineyard. They threw him, they didn't bury him, which would have been extremely offensive. So Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Is this harsh? It's pretty harsh. Is it justifiable? In Isaiah, God punished the vineyard of Israel for not producing good fruit. And here the tenants are clearly to blame. The religious leaders caused Israel's corruption and now they will be removed. Jesus says, haven't you read this? passage of scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes this is another old testament quote from psalm 118 22. many believe this was sung at the dedication of the second temple or jerusalem's rebuilt walls it was sung on palm sunday that we celebrated two weeks ago if you haven't figured it out yet jesus is the son in the story the stone was a symbol for the messiah God sent his son to earth knowing he would be killed. Jesus is the rejected one. He is the cornerstone. Up until this point, the religious leaders, they thought that the, that, really that the tenants were the evil Romans, but now they realize that Jesus is saying that they are the tenants. They are the violent ones in charge of the vineyard. They are the ones that have been leading Israel. The tenants, the leaders Of Israel. See the the surprise in this story, the surprise that must have just horrified these religious leaders, that they were the bad guys. Everybody thought they were the good guys. They were the righteous ones. They had it all together. Jesus tells this story and basically calls them out and says, You are the ones in trouble. Kind of reminds me of the story when Nathan confronts David about David's sins, and he tells a little story. Riles up, David says, I can't believe someone would do that horrible thing. And Nathan says, you are that man. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, you are that bad guy. You are the unrighteous one. You are the violent one. You are the evil and wicked one. There are three special offices or positions in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is all three he's the only one that fits all three he is our prophet he is a great high priest and he is the king of kings and the lord of lords then the chief priests the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them but they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away the religious leaders would soon kill Jesus he would die. But he is risen. He is risen Did I tell you you get exercise credits if you stand? <laughs> All right, so what? So Jesus tells this story, angers a bunch of people. So what's the big deal? Honestly, I wrestle with this passage for a lot this week. When you go verse by verse teaching through the Bible, there are some passages that are really fun, they're really exciting. You just can't wait to, 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 to study them, to preach them, to come up with stories and analogies and applications. And then there are other passages that quite honestly, you kind of read them and you look at them like, what do I do with this? Can we just skip it and move on? It's a discipline of mine to go through books of the Bible to not skip passages, either, either passages that I don't like or passages that are difficult or challenging or just maybe not as relevant or interesting. So I'm just going to give you my best shot, a few reflections on this passage. Again, it was a contextual thing. We know it led to Jesus' arrest. We know it led to Good Friday, his crucifixion, which led to Resurrection Sunday that we will celebrate and continue to celebrate. So here's just some thoughts. First, the Old and New Testaments are two parts of the same story. This might not be news to all of you, but... Jesus took a story in Isaiah and updated it for a new audience, a different audience, and through some twists and turns. Many of you are very familiar with this whole idea of remaking a movie. Oh, they're going to take that old movie and, and redo it. And oftentimes people say, it's not as good as the original one. Or sometimes they say, wow, that was a whole lot better than the original one. Or people say, I, I didn't even know there was an original one. I just saw this movie and it looked interesting to me. Jesus takes an old story and revises it, twists it, and uses it for his purposes to convey a point. He is masterful at storytelling, and in this case, of recycling or retelling an old story. Second, biblical prophecy gives credibility to the Bible. Maybe you heard this, this story, it just came out yesterday, that in Egypt, they uncovered a, a three, I believe it was a 3,000-year-old city it had been buried under sand for thousands of years, and they just, un, they just discovered it. They said it's like the largest archaeological find that they've ever had in, the, in, in Egypt. I love archaeology, and I love particularly biblical archaeology because they're finding more and more things. Now, that was just Egypt. I, I don't believe it had anything to do with the, the scriptures per se. But in Israel and Greece and other places that I've been privileged to visit, They've uncovered so much of the Bible. And over and over again, we see that the things that that are written thousands of years ago, they're uncovering those details, which is just providing more credibility to the Scriptures. This is one of many accounts in which, by the way, not just archaeology, but prophecy. Jesus predicted his own death. Hopefully you all saw that. I mean, that was the whole point of the story. They killed the son. Jesus knew he was going to die. He predicted that he would die, and then he died for no fault of his own. See, we don't worship the Bible; we worship Jesus. But the Bible is a reliable tool that we have to know and understand God and His plan for humanity. It's not just a bunch of fairy tales, a result of some dream or indigestion that somebody had. It's a historically accurate. Archaeological verifiable library of books assembled in multiple languages from multiple con- uh, um, from multiple writers over hundreds of years, with one overarching meta narrative of God's love for us and His desire for us to respond in obedience. Thirdly, God wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with you. Do you have one? This is where the religious leaders missed the boat. They tried to be good, moral people, but they failed to do the two things that God requires. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In the story, the Jews were God's chosen people. They were the fruitless vineyard. Today, the church is often understood to be God's chosen people. We've been grafted in with the Jews. God, the vineyard owner, gave the vineyard to the church. If we are God's vineyard today, what kind of fruit are we bearing? What kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? If you look at the passages that surround today's text, you'll get an idea of what God requires. Our place of worship is to be a house of prayer for all nations, it says in Mark 11, 17. 11, Mark eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus talks about being a forgiving family. Mark 12, 17, the next passage. We're to give to God what belongs to God. Mark 12, 30, we're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Mark 12, 31, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what it looks like to bear fruit. This is the good fruit that God wants out of your life and out of my life. By the way, John 15, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible, Jesus says that If you want to bear fruit, you need to be connected to the vine. You need to be connected to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you do life with me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. When the vine is disconnected from the branches, the branches aren't going to bear any fruit. If you come to my house, you'll see in the backyard, I've got some branches that have fallen down. They will never bear fruit. You will never bear fruit, at least good fruit, unless you are connected to the vine, unless you know Jesus, unless you spend time with Jesus, spend time in his word, unless you invite the Holy Spirit to come in and produce the fruit of the Spirit that only the, fruit of the, that only the Holy Spirit can produce in your life. And it takes more than an hour a week, friends. This is, this is great. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. But following Jesus is not a a once-a-week thing. It's a daily thing. Any more than I would say to my wife, I'm going to give you an hour this week, and then I'm going to just take off and do my own thing for the next 167. I'll see you in a week, and we'll have an hour together. Like, how long could that sustain a marriage? And yet so many people go through life. That's their attitude, their approach to Jesus. I'll give you an hour, but the rest is mine. And then they wonder why they feel so disconnected, why their lives are not what they want them to be, the way that they're struggling with so many habits, hurts, and hang-ups. The fruit we owe the owner, God, is our obedience. I wanna invite the music team to come up because we're gonna close with a, a song in just a moment. But we are to be an accepting, prayerful, devoted, forgiving, and loving fellowship built around Jesus The cornerstone that binds everything together. Otherwise, according to this text, we're going to face judgment. Psalm 118, I told you, Jesus quoted it. It says, It's the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting from David hundreds of years earlier. Jesus was hated and rejected. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was crucified. But he conquered sin and death. Hallelujah. He is risen.